And welcome to San Francisco Bible Church. It's a joy to have you worshiping uh, here with us uh, this morning. Whether you're here in person or you're online, we're grateful to have you. Um, In our worship of God this morning, uh, through the preaching of the Word, we will be returning to our study in the one another's. And just as we did in our last sermon on the one another's in March, we are going to continue to expand on Colossians 3 to see God's expected response for all believers to the salvation that he has graciously given to us. This morning, we're going to do it through one verse. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians 3 and make your way down to verse 16. Colossians 3, verse 16. The Apostle Paul writes this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for your word and for the great power that your word has to change our lives. We recognize that even though we want to live our lives in a way that uh, reflects a trust in you and, and, and that desires to please you in every moment of our days, we recognize that we at times fall short. And so we pray, Lord, that you would allow for your word to have its transforming effect on our hearts this morning as we learn more about how we can grow to be like Jesus Christ. We pray that you would soften our hearts even now, that you would remove any obstacles that we might have to hearing your word, hearing what you have to say through your servant. And we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased and glorified this morning as we recognize what your word has to say to us. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. Well, wherever the genuine church has gathered throughout history. One of the defining marks of the church is that they preached the word of God to others so that other people might know about God, their need for forgiveness of sins, and how the forgiveness of sins is possible through repenting of sin and believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the mission of the church was never, was never just to preach the word of God to others and then move on once people pray to prayer. In the Great Commission, our Lord Jesus Christ commands us to make disciples of all nations. And part of that act of disciple making is teaching future generations of Christians to keep all of Christ's commands to keep all of Christ's commands, not the ones that we personally feel we like or the ones that are easier to do, right? But all of Christ's commands. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in Colossians 1, 28 to 29, when he writes, Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ." For this purpose, I also labor, striving according to his working, which he works in me in power. 
You see, the goal of every Christian ministry should be, pro, it should be to proclaim Christ to all with the end goal that every person will be spiritually mature. And the reason why this church does not only have Sunday worship, but also has fellowship groups, Bible studies, and Sunday school classes for all ages is because we want to be faithful to teach everyone more about God, more about His Word, and more about His will for those who believe so that you will love God more, so that you will understand how you fit in His kingdom plan, and so that you will go about doing what God wants you to do in this life. I know that many of you have heard a lot about God, a lot about Christ in your time as a Christian. And it can be tempting the third or fourth time around you hear Old Testament survey to think that you've known it, that you know it all already. But brothers and sisters, we recognize the fact that we're never done growing. We're never done learning more about who God is. Right? Every time we open up the scriptures, there's more for us to glean. Right? There's more for us to glean that we should not think that we've mastered it already. And while it's not, certainly not a sin for you to miss out on fellowship groups, Bible studies, and Sunday school classes, we provide these opportunities for you, for every single believer, to grow in their knowledge of God's word because we know that we all need more. Right, because we're not a finished product, we need more. We need, to, we, we need more opportunities to be amazed by our great God. Right, even, even in heaven, the learning does not stop. Right, we will continue to learn about the glorious nature of our God continually. Right, that's something really exciting to look forward to. Now, how do we accomplish this goal so that all believers can be the people that God wants us to be? After all, God does teach us his word. He does teach us what is right, but he doesn't actually obey for you, right? We're responsible to obey ourselves. He doesn't magically transform us into perfect beings one morning when we wake up, although that would be nice, wouldn't it? To no longer sin anymore. You just wake up and then, all my anger and bitterness and, and all those other sins that bother me uh, and, and cause me to, to react poorly to, to other people, like all of them gone, right? That'd be wonderful if God would just help us wake up one morning and it's all melt, magically melted away. But that's not what happens. That's not how God works, right? So how does it work? Well, enter the role of the church and our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Also, you know, with, in, in combination with the Word of God, of course. Right? But God gives us the church. God gives us gifted leaders in the church and one another to help us grow to be more like Jesus. And in our sermon this morning, we're going to specifically examine two methods that God uses to help us grow to become more like Jesus Christ. And these two methods are instruction and admonishment. Right? Instruction and admonishment. These are the two ways that God uses to help us grow to become more like Jesus Christ. In the first method, instruction, 
we see in the first half of the verse these words. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching, and then, of course, there's more. But let's just focus on this first half. So the main verb here in verse 16 is literally the command, let the word of Christ dwell. Let the word of Christ dwell. Paul wants to make sure that the Colossians and us, by extension, understand that it is not an option for them to allow the word of Christ to dwell in them. It is mandatory, which is why he is commanding them, and us, of course, to allow for the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. And this is a subtle reminder for us that the relationship between the word of God and Christians is tightly linked together. There is no such thing, there is no such thing as a Christian who has no need for the word of God, nor is there such thing as a Christian who completely refuses to obey God's word. Nor should there be, but there definitely are, Christians who decide to kind of take a pick and choose, pick your own path, customization uh, mindset when it comes to obeying the word of God. There shouldn't be that, but there definitely are. You know, there, there definitely are people, there definitely are Christians, basically all of us, really, right, who do that. Right, we will obey when it's convenient for us. We will obey when we feel like it, but we don't always want to. Now, will there be these times of rebellion and times of wrestling with sin, times where we get so stuck that we need other people to help get us out? Absolutely. Christians do not receive final victory over sin until we are glorified, either when we get to heaven through death or when Christ takes us home to heaven in the rapture. And even though we are waiting for this future glorification, God makes it clear through Paul that there is an expectation that Christians not only know God's word, but that we have a relationship with God's word. Now, you'll notice... In this particular case, Paul is very specific with his words. He identifies God's word as the word of Christ. Why does he do this? Because he could have said, if he wanted to, to say the word of God. He has words for that. He knows how to do that. So why does he say the word of Christ? Why does he highlight the word of Christ? Well, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, Paul wanted to address a particular form of false teaching that was going around. And it was a false teaching that elevated Uh, legalism to the Jewish law. It elevated angel worship and a particular form of Gnosticism that that basically says the spiritual things are good, they're holy, but the material things, the physical things that we can touch and feel, those things are bad, they're evil. And that's quite a long list of false teaching to deal with all at one time. And so as a result, Paul wants to remind the Colossians that right doctrine or the doctrine that is consistent about who Jesus Christ is and the doctrine that is from Jesus Christ is the doctrine that ought to shape their thinking. All right, so basically, we're talking about the entire Word of God. Now, what kind of relationship should we have with God's Word? Well, that word richly highlights for us how God wants us to interact with His Word, how deep of a relationship we ought to have with God's Word. 
that word richly can also be translated as abundantly or extravagantly rich. If God's word is to abundantly dwell in us, that means that our relationship with with God's word must go deeper than a passing greeting with someone in the hall. Sure, we might be able to get something out of God's word through Sunday sermons, Bible studies, fellowship groups, podcasts, Christian blogs, and Christian books, but the question still remains, is all the time that you are spending around God's word surface level, or have you also thought more deeply about the Word of God, to allow that exposure to God's Word to deeply saturate your life. And don't get me wrong. I'm glad that many of us spend time in God's Word, that we read Christian books, and that we read Christian blogs, and that we listen to sermons. I will never tell you not to do any of those things. However, however, It isn't hard to do all those things and still have a superficial walk with God, right? You can do all those things and still have a superficial walk with God. You can listen to podcasts of sermons while you're walking and still not exactly be changed by it. And there are, are, of course, many benefits to being around the Word of God. But just coming into contact with the Word of God will not make you holier. It will not necessarily make you more like Jesus. Think about it this way. If it's your responsibility to make dinner, and you have a thick piece of meat, pork loin, chicken, turkey, whatever, and you want to, mar- you want to marinate that meat so that it's flavorful, right? if you're doing a dry rub, you don't just kind of like lightly sprinkle it over the meat and then throw it in the oven, right? If you're doing a wet marinade, you don't just splash it on and throw it in, 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 the, in the oven right away, right? Or throw it in the pan. If you do, well, the outside will taste slightly good, right? The outside bark will be okay. But once you get into the inside, ooh, you're going to need some sauce, right? To make up for the fact that you just cooked a flavorless piece of meat, right? The marinade, whether it's dry or wet, didn't have enough time to get deep into the meat in a similar way. If we are just coming into contact with God's word, but we're not saturating ourselves in it by thinking deeply about how it applies to us and how we can change. We might look like a Christian. We might talk like a Christian. We might do good works, but still be spiritually immature. Just because you serve doesn't mean that you are spiritually mature. We can be blind to our sin, just as the people of Israel were when they were wandering around in the wilderness. Think about it. As we've been going through numbers with Pastor Henry, it can be really easy to look at the Israelites and and think, "Um, what's wrong with you guys? What's wrong with you guys? Don't you realize that You guys are grumbling and complaining and rebelling against God again. And don't you realize that that is what led to your judgment last time? It can be really easy for us to look at them and just be like, why don't you get it? 
Right? When you see the rod of, of Aaron or you see the rod of Moses, don't you remember all the good, th- all the powerful, wonderful things that God has done through that? Don't you remember that because you failed to trust in God and because you failed to obey him, because you complained and rebelled against him, you die, or a b- bunch of you died. Do you recognize that, right? I mean, he's like, Israelites, you are so, so dumb. What is wrong with you guys, right? It's easy for us to do that. Take a step back and think about it. How often, how often do we sin without realizing it until after the fact? How easy is it for us to sin and then realize only after, oh, I should not have done that? How often do we sin against other people We don't even realize it. And we need other people to actually say, hey, that was actually not okay. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that if you're walking closely with God that you won't ever sin. But my point here, however, is that it's a lot harder. It is a lot harder to be caught unaware in your sin when you're walking closely with the Lord because the closer you are to our Lord, the more you realize how sinful you are. As we, as we see the brightness of our Lord's glory, right, as more of his holy light is being shined upon our lives, the more the imperfections in our lives become apparent. The more we see the stains, the more we see the things that are broken and slightly out of place, the more we see all the gunk that is on our shoes and on our hands and all over our face. But as we grow more in our love for God and our knowledge for Him, yes, sin will become more apparent to us, but oh, the sweetness of His grace, the sweetness of the washing of our sins through Christ's blood is, as we recognize, God did not have to show me grace, and yet he did, and yet he does. He continually will do so. That's what makes his grace so amazing. Our salvation is, is not because we lack sin or that we have special skill sets that God says, I need that for my kingdom. Our salvation is given to us purely on the basis of God's sovereign choice to graciously save us. And it is this truth that should drive us to want to know him more. Who is this God who saved us? What is he like? What does he have me here on this earth to do? How can I become more like him? This desire and this responsibility to want to know God more and to allow his word to richly dwell in us is not simply for those who are more gifted or those who are more inclined to want to know about God in this way. This command is for all of us. That word, uh, you, you can't see it in the English as well, but in the Greek, it's the plural. It's you all, right? Let the word of Christ dwell in you all richly. Each individual within the congregation is responsible for allowing the word of God to dwell in us richly. 
We are to do this together. We are all meant to not just know facts from the Bible or about the Bible, but to also apply those truths to our lives so that we don't just do what we feel or personally believe is right, but we do what God says is right. It's not about living your truth. It's about living according to God's truth. The way that we do this is by teaching and admonishing one another God's truth. And as we just noted, the whole church has a responsibility to do this for one another. We're going to explore admonishment more in a moment, but I do want to point out that what governs our teaching and our admonishment is wisdom. We are to teach and admonish one another in wisdom. And that's similar to what Paul said in Colossians 1.28. When Paul said that his goal was to admonish and teach every man with all wisdom. The wisdom with which we are to teach each other about God is God's wisdom. He is the source of that wisdom. He gives us the guidelines for how we are to interact with one another throughout the entirety of his word. But if you just want a, you know, a quick place to, to learn more about God's wisdom, well, you can look in Proverbs in the Old Testament, and you can look in James in the New Testament. And those are some, uh, some easy places to start. But uh, more, more on this in our talk about admonishment. But for now, let's explore teaching a little bit more. So as we can see from this text, there is an expectation from God that his people will teach one another more about him. In Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 12, and I understand that the, that the text is small, but look specifically at that line, then it will be. Then it will be. God puts the responsibility on parents to teach their children about him in every aspect of life so that when they get to the promised land, they will not forget how they got there. When they live in houses that they did not build and when they are, are experiencing the blessings of God, that they're not just taking advantage of it without recognizing who it's from. God puts the onus on the parents to remind their children that God is the one who did this for us. Right, don't forget what God has done in delivering us from Egypt and sustaining us in the wilderness as we wandered. Do not forget God. This is supposed to be done in every aspect of life. As you can see here, right? when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, this is basically talking about every aspect of our lives is supposed to be a teaching moment. In the first nine chapters of Proverbs, Solomon writes to his son, Rehoboam, and continually reminds his, uh, reminds his son to heed his instruction, to embrace the wisdom that God gives his people through the instruction of his parents. There's an expectation that we teach God's word. In Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34, God speaks of a time where this instruction of each other about God will no longer be necessary. It will no longer be needed because God himself will place his law in our hearts so that every single person from the least to the greatest will know him. But until that time, That's what we're looking forward to. But until that time, we all have a responsibility to share what we've been learning about God with each other. 
so that our entire church will continually grow in our knowledge of God, in our appreciation of God, and that that knowledge of God will lead us to love Him, obey Him, and love other people too. In a sense, every time you open this book and you read it, you shouldn't necessarily just be thinking, what is in it for me? When we open this book and we immerse ourselves in it, we're thinking also about how can this impact the body as well. You're not just reading for you. You're reading for your brothers and sisters also. Not just for you, but for our family. Just like with our salvation, your devotional time is not about you. It's about the glory of God. And we do it for the body. Now, I want to be clear. God does not expect that every single one of us will, as a result, be super zealous and like, I'm going to sign up for Sunday school. Although we do need people to sign up for Sunday school, uh, to help teach Sunday school. Nor does this mean... That every single one of you should aspire to be preachers. Now, we acknowledge that there are people who are very, very gifted at, at teaching and that they should use their gift to teach. But even if this is not your exact gifting, we still ought to teach one another in some sense. As our brother Theo pointed out in his sermon in Colossians 3, a way that we can teach one another is through our singing. It's through our singing. As we're singing truth to one another, and as we think about what we are singing, we instruct one another about, what, about who God is and what he's done for us. But there are also some other practical ways that we teach each other also. For example, when we pray with one another and we're sharing our prayer requests, we're sharing our burdens, we are helping instruct one another on how to entrust our lives and our circumstances to God. That's what we do when we model prayer for one another. We're reminding each other, you can't do it on your own. I might not be able to help you, but you know who can? God can. Right? That prayer is something. It's not just you know, something that you do to some maybe pretend person in the sky, but it actually is something. It means something. Right? You're entrusting yourself to the God of the universe who loves you and cares for you, who created everything through the power of his word. And if you can do that, can he not care for you? If he hears you, can he not care for you? Absolutely, he can. When we eat with children and we model prayer for them by saying to them, okay, close your eyes, bow your head, fold your hands. We are trying to physically demonstrate to them how to honor God. You know, as well as I do, that you don't necessarily have to Always pray with eyes closed, head bowed, and hands folded. If you're praying in your car, I sure hope that your eyes are open. (laughs) But we're trying to demonstrate to our kids in the small things how we are to honor and respect our Lord by getting rid of all the distractions and focusing our minds on Him. When we meet up with one another and we're trying to talk about life, trying to help each other through rough circumstances. We're trying to impart what we know from the scriptures to them, to help them learn how to respond in their trials, 
to trust in God in their trials. All, right? All of these are just everyday examples of how we teach one another. Every single one of us has that responsibility to each other. It doesn't have to be formal. Nor do you have to be a Bible expert to do it. But we are all to teach one another according to the capacity that God has given us. And teaching is just one of those methods, though, that God uses to help us grow to become more like Jesus. The second method that God uses to help Christians become more like Jesus is admonishment. Admonishment. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. Just like with teaching, any admonishment we provide ought to be done with all wisdom. But what is admonishment? Well, admonishment comes from that same Greek word that we use to describe biblical counseling, nuthateo. And that word has a sense of warning. We're warning people of the consequences of of their behavior. We're warning them of straying from the truth. We're trying to provide a corrective aspect to something that is incorrect or maybe weak, trying to build them up. Teaching is generally a positive word. Admonishment is teaching, but with a slight negative connotation of that correction. Now going back to that idea that we began our sermon with, the the, the, the goal of our ministry is to proclaim Christ so that every single one of us will be complete in Christ. And that means that there is no concept, unfortunately, of maturity that does not also include admonishment. It would be nice, wouldn't it, if we didn't have to be admonished, right? If someone could just teach us and we would learn it and it would be fine, no problems whatsoever, right? That would be super nice. But we need admonishment too, right? We all need admonishment Maturity often is learned through warning, through correction. It is usually in this area of warning and correction that we can sometimes make mistakes and perhaps say things more strongly than necessary. I myself am, am, was, still sometimes deal with this. I I have to be more mindful of this. By saying things more strongly than I ought to. This is a common problem among believers. And so if you've accidentally done this, do not fret. Do not fear. Do not be discouraged. But consider how you might learn to admonish in a way that pleases our Lord. Every single one of us in this room has likely admonished someone in a way that was not pleasing to God. That's, that's okay. We can learn from that. Let's consider a classic text that even unbelievers use, uh, even unbelievers like to reference. Matthew 7. Matthew 7. Jesus says this, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you measure, it will be measured to you. And why? 
Do you look at that speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye? And behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. When we look at this passage, right? when other people use this passage against us when we're judging them, right? usually the takeaway is, hey, Jesus said don't judge, so don't you be judging me. Right? That's usually the takeaway. But is that what Jesus is saying here? No. And that is not what Jesus is saying here. Verse 2 makes it clear that it is the manner, it is the manner in which we judge, that we have to be mindful of when we are trying to admonish other people, when we're trying to confront other people. Do not judge other people in a way where if the shoe was on the other foot, you wouldn't appreciate it. If we judge other people harshly, and we get judged harshly, and it's kind of like, okay, it's on. I'm going to gear up for war. Let's go. You're going to come at me? I'm going to come at you. Do we have the right to respond in that way? Do we have the right to feel that way? If that's what we do to other people. Furthermore, verses 3 to 5. It's important for us to examine ourselves before we approach someone to warn them or correct them. Is what they're doing actually... Is what they is what they're doing actually something sinful or is it a violation of our own preferences and convictions when we want to approach them? Are, are we ourselves in sin in how we want to approach them? Are we so blind in our anger and in our rage that we just need to let them have it? Even if we're right, that's not exactly right. Admonishing one another with all wisdom requires self-reflection, humble self-reflection, before we approach other people, precisely because it is so easy for us to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt that our motives are pure, before we give other people the benefit of the doubt that their actions might not be what we thought they were. That was a mouthful, I'll say it again. Right? Isn't it easy for us to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and not give it to other people? In Proverbs 21, 2, it says this, Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but Yahweh weighs the heart. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but Yahweh weighs the heart's. If we think other people have wronged us and we think that we are justified in feeling a certain way about them or acting a certain way towards them, we more often than not justify any feelings of sin that we might have against them. Kind of sweep it under the rug because, well, they hurt us. And because they hurt us, I am justified in feeling this way. But even in Ephesians 4, we're reminded, be angry, but do not sin. 
even when we consider whether we ought to confront someone or not, we have to consider the principle that Peter highlights in 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Does this mean that we let our friends get away with sin? Because we love them and we don't want, them to, we don't want to judge them or we don't want them to, make, or we don't want them to feel bad. No. What Peter is highlighting here is that when people sin against us, there might be another reason for their sin, something that explains it. Right? It doesn't justify it, but there might be an explanation for it that we've not considered. Maybe they had a rough day. Maybe everything is going wrong. The computer breaks. The coffee spilled all over the floor. And as a result, the socks are all wet. Right? Nothing more miserable than wet socks. Well, actually, that's not true. But, you know, wet socks are not fun. Maybe they're under a lot of pressure at work. Maybe because of all the mess that's going on in their lives, they forgot that they were supposed to meet up with you. And that's why they stood you up. Maybe something is going on in their family or their personal life. And so the way that you would like for them to express their friendship and care to you is not being done. Who knows? If it's a once in a while thing, a once in a while occurrence of of sin, just flashes of sin, love can cover that. Yes? We can look it over. Grace can be extended. However, if what you see is a consistent pattern of sin, or at least what you suspect to be sin, that's where those confrontation restoration principles of Matthew 18 come in, where we come alongside our brother or sister, and we try to determine whether they're in sin by asking a lot of questions. Of course, asking a lot of questions is not necessarily something that we uh, see commanded in the scriptures, but it's helpful. It's helpful because if we ask questions... It helps us understand where this person's coming from. It helps us see the world through their eyes, through their vantage point. And hopefully, as we do that, we can win the hearts of our brothers and sisters over as we take the time to understand where they're coming from. If you just accuse someone right away of sin, the immediate response is likely going to be defensiveness rather than humble consideration, rather than a desire to repent. Proverbs 18, 19 says this, A brother offended is harder to win over than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a citadel. Even if you think you know the situation, ask questions. And maybe, maybe, through God's grace and your display of care and love, you can win your brother and sister over as you humbly explain to them what you're observing in their lives. This humble act of warning someone of sin or potential sin is something that God calls his people to do for one another so that we will not stray from the truth or right living. And yes, it might be, no, actually, it definitely is uncomfortable doing this. It's not fun. It's not easy. And if you like doing that, maybe we should have a conversation about that because it's not necessarily a good thing to always want to go confront people, okay? But 
Consider this, even though it is uncomfortable at times to do this, obedience to God's word is more important than allowing our brothers or sisters to continue to live in such a way that dishonors our Lord. Obedience is more important than our own comfort. Always. Now, if we humble ourselves, examine our hearts, examine our motives, and do our best to win our siblings our spiritual siblings, over to the truth, then we can leave the rest up to the Lord, knowing that we've done our best to admonish. Now, if more sin comes out following the admonishment, then correction and discipline will follow. But we also want to give people room to change, too, right? To grow and change, too. If I were to confront you on a particular sin issue, let's just say impatience, and, and then five minutes later, you're growing impatient, because the Yelp information for the restaurant you want to go to for lunch is not loading, and you're getting frustrated, and you're, and you're saying curses to your wireless carrier or the church Wi-Fi. And I came at you and I said, how dare you act impatiently after I just talked to you about impatience? If I did that to you, would you like that? I'm not seeing any acknowledgement, so maybe you would. But no, you wouldn't, right? You wouldn't, because I didn't give you time and space to process. I didn't acknowledge the fact that there might be some times where you might slip back into it. We all slip back into our sins, right? I don't know any person who has learned from their sin and not seen it pop up in another way in their lives. In a sense, that's kind of what God does, right? He teaches us. We learn from our sins. For instance, for me, with pride, Right? I, I might know what pride looks like in a certain aspect of my life, but then God will change the vantage point, change the situation, and then I respond poorly, and I'm like, wait a second, why did I do that? Hmm, pride. But didn't I just learn about that? Different vantage point, same opportunity for failure, and I still do, right? and you still do. We all do. We have to give each other room for growth and you know, even acknowledge that there's, there's going to be times where we'll have some uh, backtracking. But all of, we, all, of, all of what we just explored is in relationship to us doing the admonishment. But what if we are the ones being admonished? What if we are the ones being admonished? How are we supposed to respond to admonishment? Well, one of the first things that we should do is to humble ourselves. Humble ourselves and consider whether what is being said about us is true, even if it is just a shred of truth, right? Even if it's truth in the slightest. It's easy to get defensive, especially if we feel like what has been said about us is untrue or unfair. But remember what God said through Peter to the persecuted Christians who were exiled from their homes in 1 Peter 5. You remember that the Christians in 1 Peter, right, they were being called all sorts of names, all sorts of things. They were being exiled from their communities and their homes because of all these slanderous things that were being said about them. What does God say? Fight for your right to defend yourself. Show those people that you are right and they are wrong. No. He didn't say that. He said this, and all of you, clothe yourselves 
with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. It can be easy for us to feel as if the admonition or correction that we receive is too strong, it's too inappropriate, it does not match up with what I've done. You've gone too far. And in some cases, you might be right. In some cases, you might be right. Perhaps there was a better way for someone to approach you, or at least try to understand you and where you're coming from before they approached you. Perhaps you're right. But perhaps you're also wrong. No matter what that scenario is, we cannot forget that the proper response to admonition is not to gear up to defend ourselves, but to humble ourselves and to entrust our situation to God. To humbly consider whether what that other person had to say about us is true and if we need to change because of that. Notice this too in 1 Peter 5. If we are truly being treated unfairly, who is going to be our defender? Is it us? Is it our friends? No. It is our Lord. Our Lord is the one who will defend. Our Lord will be the one who comforts. Our Lord will be the one who protects. And of course, you know, there are some instances in life where you probably, you know, where it's okay for you to defend yourself. You know, like if you wrongly get a traffic ticket, like you don't have to, or, you know, like a parking violation, but like you didn't do it. You can appeal those things, okay? That's not what I'm saying. Like, I'm not saying like take your ticket and be like, I'm appealing this to the Lord. And, you know, that's, obviously that doesn't make any sense, right? But in terms of when other people are coming at you and attacking you, right? We allow the Lord to defend us. Think about this too. If we are found lacking, he will be the one who gives us all the grace that we need to grow us and change us. We ought to resist that temptation to immediately defend and vent our frustrations to others. For Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool does not delight in discernment, but only in revealing his own heart. You don't want to be the person who speaks too soon. You don't want to be the person who has all the hot takes and then later gets exposed when all the receipts are given. You don't want to be a fool. Don't just want to reveal your own heart. Consider what God has to say. Consider whether there actually is any truth to what people are saying about us. Or even if we're only 1% responsible, even if we're only 1% responsible, right? that's 1% that we've contributed to the problem and the culture of that relationship. And for that, we have to own up to it. You can't just say, well, because 99% of it is on the other person, I don't have to deal with me. Right? That's not what God says. We have to deal with ourselves. Even if someone talks to us in the wrong way, 
or with the wrong words, with the wrong motives, or even the wrong tone. We should humble ourselves and consider what God's word has to say about us in our situation. Proverbs 15, 31 to 33 says this, he whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will lodge among the wise. He who neglects discipline despises his soul, but he who listens to reproof acquires a heart of wisdom. The fear of Yahweh is the discipline leading to wisdom. And before glory comes humility. God does not put us here on this earth to live this life alone. He gives us our brothers and sisters in Christ and sometimes even unbelievers to help us realize how much we need him. He gives us other people in our lives so that we can see how easily we can get out of whack and how much we need to daily depend on him for grace to live that life that pleases him. We cannot do it on our own. We need one another. And we need one another to tell us hard things sometimes because it's so easy for us to be right in our own eyes. God uses the people in our lives to open our eyes at times, which is why Proverbs 27, 5 to 6 says this, better is reproof that is revealed than love that is hidden. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Brothers and sisters, if we genuinely love one another, we will seek to wisely, tactfully, and tastefully seek to admonish one another in the scriptures with all wisdom. We don't warn each other of sin out of a desire for our preferences or our expectations to be met. We do not warn each other so that our lives can be made easier. It would be a lot easier, right, if someone was acting in a very unwise way to just yell at them so that hopefully they correct themselves and check themselves so that we don't have to deal with it, right? If they just if we were just allowed to yell at them and they'll and they'll change, wouldn't that be great? That would be that'd be wonderful. That'd be wonderful. But you don't do it just to make your life easier. You should do it because you love them. You should do it because if you allow them to continue to go down that path, their hearts will stray from the Lord. That should be your desire, not just, I don't have time to deal with your insolence right now. I don't have time to deal with your rebellion right now. That's usually what we do, right? Parents, dog owners, right? That's usually what we do. But that's not how we ought to do it. We ought to do it in love. Because we love each other and we love God. And we want others to love God. We want what God wants for them. A strong relationship with him. And for our God to be glorified as the watching world sees that we actually believe the words in this book and we live by it. Shocker, right? That a Christian actually reads the word of God, believes it, and lives by it. That's what we want to show the world, though, that this word has an impact in our lives. So that even if 
we encounter situations where other people would respond in a sinful manner that we try not to because we want to show the world the gospel has changed my heart so that I don't have to respond that way anymore. Right? That is the goal of our witness. Now, we spend a lot of time zeroing in on what it means to teach and admonish one another. But as we close our time this morning, let us finish examining Colossians 3.16. Right, this teaching and admonishing one another is done with all wisdom, right? and, and it can be done through singing. Now, just because it says here that we are to, uh, with all wisdom, teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that doesn't mean that the only way that we can teach and admonish is through singing. Right? It would be kind of weird if I walked up to you and I started singing at you, telling you all well, the things that you've been doing wrong, right? Or you know, if someone else were to do that too, that'd be kind of strange. We don't live in a musical, although some of you would dream that we were. That we do, right? Um, but singing is definitely a way that breaks us, that, that kind of changes our awareness of things, right? It changes our awareness of things. And we, we know from God's word that you know, preaching, is, preaching and discipleship helps us to grow like Jesus, but singing truths can be a very helpful way to internalize those truths. It has an instructive effect. Songs with, with lyrics that focus in on scriptural truths, whether they come in forms of psalms, spirituals, or hymns, right, have a way to help us internalize truth that we already know in our minds, but maybe we needed a different method to help us realize, oh, actually, I need to do something different. One of the songs that has meant a lot to me as a modern hymn, we're going to sing it in response, is Oh Great God. And in this hymn, we're reminded of who we were before Christ and how God has graciously saved us. But there's also a prayer, a prayer that pierces the heart, especially when we find ourselves not walking with Jesus as we should. And that prayer goes like this, help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. Oh, great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. This is the prayer of our hearts, that our, God, our great God would be glorified in our lives as we seek to teach and admonish one another with the truths our Lord gives us in his word. This morning, we had the privilege of observing two methods that God uses to help Christians become more like Jesus Christ, teaching and admonishment. We need both teaching and admonishment and warning in our lives because we need more of our Lord in our lives. Without him, we are nothing. Without him, the practice of the one another's is nothing more than a list of suggestions that could possibly make our lives slightly better. But praise be to God that he gives us not only the knowledge of himself through his word, but he also gives us himself. Right? We just need him. That's what we need. And so, brothers and sisters, if you believe that God is truly worthy of being worshipped, truly worthy of being pursued, and truly worth being in a relationship with. Do everything that you can to know him more. Appreciate 
both the positive and negative aspects of how he teaches us and trains us in righteousness so that the word of God can have its transformative effect on our hearts so that we can be the people that God wants us to be. Remember that even though God may have to provide us with warnings and even discipline us, that he loves us, that he disciplines us because he loves us and he wants to give us what is best for us, himself. For those of you who are here this morning who are not believers in Jesus Christ, you've not repented of your sins, please know that God, he really does love you. And the most tangible expression of that is the fact that he sent his son to die on the cross for you. So that you do not have to bear the punishment that you've rightly earned because you have sinned against him. I know that not every Christian represents Christ well. I know there are times where people within this church do not represent Christ well. That we are not as patient as we should be. That we are not as gracious as we should be. I am one of those Christians who often fails to be gracious, who often fails to be patient, who often fails to ask questions and to come off strong sometimes. But it's not about me. By the grace of God, he is changing me and growing me so I can be more like Jesus every day. He's doing the same thing for everyone else in this room who is a believer too. So if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, and the reason why you don't want to believe is because all the Christians that you know in your life are hypocrites. And they're evil people. They don't look any different than than anyone else in the world. I beg you, please do not let your bad experiences with imperfect Christians cause you to reject the perfect God who loves you and cares for you. We're works in progress, but he is perfect and complete. He loves you and he does not want you to die in your sins. He doesn't want you to go to hell. But because he upholds justice, that is what we deserve. That's what we earn for ourselves when we sin. And so will you consider his love for you this day? Will you place your faith in him this day? There are some discussion questions that um, I wrote for, for you all uh, to consider. Um, in what areas of my life does God call for me to teach others in the faith? In what ways are you a teacher, in other words? Second question is, how am I doing in having a teachable spirit when others warn or correct me? Are you teachable? Are you humble? Do you accept, do you invite other people to speak into your life? And the third question is, how can I be careful and humble in taking on the command to admonish? There is some great care that needs to be done with that. So those are some things to consider as we apply God's word to our lives um, this week. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful. We're grateful to you for your word. We're grateful that you teach us through your word. We know at times that the word of God is not always easy to digest. That there are times where the truths that come from your word are cutting. 
they're bracing. But we pray, oh Lord, you would give us humility in our hearts that we might see where we need to grow and that we would desire to grow. We pray for you to change us, Lord, so that we may glorify you in all of our lives. Give us that grace, Lord, we pray. In your son Jesus' name, amen.